Hi, I'm Megan Rinks. And I'm Melissa D. Montz. And like every other person with access to a microphone, we started a podcast. On Mondays, we release Don't Blame Me, which is an advice podcast where listeners call in and we share our thoughts on situations such as what to do if you're going to your boyfriend's family function and you haven't told him that you previously slept with both his twin brothers. Then on Thursdays, we release our podcast, But Am I Wrong?, where we ethically gossip about pop culture, politics, our lives, and your lives. Listeners write in and we tell them if they're wrong or right in a situation. Are you the hero or the villain? On Tuesdays and Fridays, we throw in a little something extra as well. Well, something, something. We strive to create a community grounded in activism, mental health, and inclusivity. Think of us as like your blunt, honest friends who give you advice that you need to hear, not what you want to hear. But we're also always rooting for your success. What we lack in credentials, we make up for in... Opinions. We do that in every episode, too. (laughs) We're professional unprofessionals, so if you're looking for a new slate of podcasts to add to your routine, we're here for you. ACAST recommends. You're listening to Pop, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. So, Stephen Lipson, Steve Lipson, welcome. Um, obviously, later on, I'm going to talk about, you know, some of these most amazing tracks um, that you've worked on and also your film work. But I want to start really about your family life and what sort of cultural background you were brought up in as a young child. Was it? Did you have one at all? A childhood? No, we had a childhood, but whether your parents were very culturally aware or they gave No, influence. not really. Middle, Sort of middle-class Jewish family in North London. Uh, very stereotypical. Uh, uh, the, music was not a thing. My dad had a, I think he had a trad jazz record that he listened to. What, one? <laughs> one trad jazz record. And I seem to remember things like uh, Gigi, The King and I, uh, these funny musicals, I seem to remember, but of of no import at all, really. Um, But my brother, at about the age of 13 or 14, decided he was going to be a drummer. And and, uh, he was always into music. And he's five years older than me. So I I sort of grabbed onto his uh, shirt tails, as it were, and and got got dragged along, learning to drum. And then at the age of eight, uh, I, I don't know. Quite, I think on holiday somewhere, my parents bought me a, a five you know five pound acoustic guitar or something. I mean, and they're quite was... brave when they when they you know. I presume they bought a drum kit for your brother. I don't know how he got a drum kit, but he used to play in his bedroom, much to my mother's dismay, of course. Uh, and uh, uh, the, the end result being he moved out of home as soon as he could. Uh, 16 or 17, he'd gone. So what attracted you to the guitar? What was, what was the reason that you wanted to play a guitar? I haven't got a clue. Uh, maybe because that was the thing. Maybe uh, I I know the first record I learnt on the guitar was "You Really Got Me" by the Kinks, and and uh, the only way I could play it was with a kitchen knife. I I made indentations on the at the top of the fretboard so I knew where to play the one string. You know, it was rubbish really. And then my cousin, who was much the same age as me, he got. He, a drum kit as well. He lived in Kensington, which became my my sort of go-to place. Uh, and I'd take my acoustic guitar along. I seem to remember buying a pickup and wiring it to a gramophone so I could hear it. Uh, it was hokey beyond belief. I mean, we're a similar generation, and I and I remember, and I was brought up in Chelmsford, which is you know northeast of London, and I remember like at school how much of an importance music was as a as a young kid. You know what I mean? It meant everything, and that you were you know you were fans of certain people, and it just seemed something so important at that young age um was that also part of the reason that 
you would eventually move into a career in music, that it had some massive importance to you as a child? Okay, I have to think about this. Music was really important. It was part of our psyche. It was part of our uh, my growing up years. Uh, is that why I went into music? I, do you know, I didn't go into music. What All that happened uh, was I ended up in a bedroom band, if that means anything to you. We just played in the bedroom with headphones and a drum box, one of those very primitive Roland drum box. Could it have been a CR-78 or something? You know, a really ancient, the very first drum box, basically. And... Um, uh, I, at the age of 13 or 14, I got a Revox. So it was just a sort of inquiring mind. Uh, so I never went into music. I was just playing. And then uh, I got better at playing. And our little bedroom band got really good. And then I started doing sessions for a friend who had a jingles company. And that uh, turned into uh, me saying to him, oh, in the meantime, my bedroom band got offered a record deal, which we blew, obviously. How did uh, you blow it? By being greedy, by oh. just wanting more. And, and the offer we received was so amazing, uh, but we wanted more. <laughs> stupid, stupid behavior. Uh, uh, and this, so anyway, my jingles friend, I, I said to him one day, I wish I could figure how all this gear works because my guitar sounds terrible. And if I knew how all the gear worked, I could make it sound great. And he said, well, it's funny you should say that because I've just bought a building and um, maybe you can build a studio for me, which is the strangest thing for someone to say. Uh, and we, we came up with a, a idea of a deal, which was he would give me a pot of money and exactly one year, and I had to build a studio and get it working within in that time frame. And I presume you knew nothing about building a studio at that point? Le less than nothing. <laughs> I knew nothing about any of it. I knew how Revox worked, and I knew how to play the guitar not particularly well to this day and um so in that year i had 15 one five thousand pounds to build a studio and feed myself because by that time i'd left home uh and i had to leave my job so i anyway i did it somehow yep. How did you do it though? Did you find, you know, did you have some form of mentor or find anybody no, that knew I had anything? nothing, absolutely nothing. I didn't know anyone. So what did I do? I found cheap gear. I found uh, secondhand dealers and basically bought rubbish gear and, and then wired it. And the way I wired it was so bad but I didn't know any better. I bought the cheapest cable because I thought all oh, cable was cabled, that, that will do, and concreted it in to the floor instead of ducting and uh, no acoustics and rubbish speakers and a multi-track, 16 track that didn't work properly and a console that didn't do anything and a couple of bits of outboard gear and a few, my, I mean, literally hopeless and had to do a session one year later with whom uh it was jingle hover over from dover with c speed since you ask yeah well i'll never forget that it was like, <laughs> it was like a five-piece band and uh, a three-hour session my first session and and i'd sort of figured enough to be able to hit record and plug microphones in and anyway it i got through it and it was uphill from then <laughs> and, um, and and ironically i i don't know what happened but uh the studio started doing well 
it do, did well enough for us to be able to lease some equipment. And oh, then wow. we got a better tape machine and a better console and, and another, con you know, on and on. It did really well. It just shows you how, you know, when you can take those opportunities that they can turn into something immense. So I want to go one step back and then come back to this. But one thing I remember from my teenage years was the representation of what pop stars sometimes meant. I'm of the era where I was a teenager in the early 70s. And for me, David Bowie was everything. He represented the other, the outsider. He represented me getting away from my parents into yeah. a world I wanted to be, where I wanted to be, which was sort of David Bowie's world. Did did you have that with the Kinks or with any band where it represented something more than just the music? No. Uh, and I realised, looking back, it was never really about the artist. It was about the record. So, so uh, on occasion, when I, I've had conversations with people about who's your favorite artist or whatever, I, I, on occasion, I've, I've thought, well, actually, I don't really have a favorite artist. I have favorite records. And maybe as a, as a kid, it was that. Having said that, I used to go to loads of gigs. I went to this school in the middle of London and uh, boarding, I was boarding and every, it, it, it doesn't matter how it happened, but every night during the week, uh, I'd sneak out and go to the Marquee Club, well, as often as possible and saw all sorts of bands there from, from 13 onwards, which was extraordinary. And then at the weekends, we go to the Lyceum uh, for all nighters and the roundhouse i think it was called implosion uh so it was gigs all the time and then when not at gigs or not at school i'd be playing in my bedroom band so it was sort of all consuming but not 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 in a uh, it, it didn't seem like a career it, it wasn't that it was just i loved it i loved the music i loved the the records, the the people that I, I was involved with. To this day, actually, I, I find people in, in music f more, I, I'm more in sync with them than people who who aren't, I suppose. I don't, I don't know why or how, but it seems to be the case. Conversation's easier. I find it fascinating that you say that the, it's, it wasn't the artist, that it was really about you know uh the music piece and and so what i think was, so yeah yeah so what was it about the kinks you really got me dun, 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 dun. i could play it <laughs> yeah it was just dead simple and they went dun, 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 dun. you know it went up a tone it was all really easy that that was it of course i loved the records funnily enough i met uh and got to know very well uh shell Talmy who who was uh, their producer and the who and a few other people besides obviously and um just purely coincidentally i i got to know him very well he used to stay in my house a lot in, so in... later on when you built this studio and it's starting to it's starting to let's say have a little bit of success in the sense that you can buy new equipment and you can build any more how did you then uh, if I can sort of term it this way, how did you slide into <laughs> production? Uh, well, it, I, I didn't know what any of it meant. And at the studio, this group came in. Uh, this was really early on, uh, called Sniff and the Tears. And they came in with... Uh, Driver's a, Seat? A, yeah. That's amazing track. Yeah, I love yeah. that track. So, so that album... Um, they came in with a guy called Barry Farmer, who was called Bazza, who was from a studio, oh, I forget the name, it was a really, really successful little eight-track studio where Stiff Records and Chiswick Records, not Gateway, I can't remember the name, it'll come to me, used to do loads of, made loads of records and demos, but for some reason they wanted to come to our studio and um, uh, Bazza, Barry, uh, he he was pretty hands off, 
and I was sitting trying to, you know, pretend I knew what I was doing, engineering, and but I couldn't help but offer suggestions because I was a guitar player, really, and they had two guitar players, so I'd be endlessly offering up ideas. And after, you know, they were sort of going along with my ideas. They were happy for me to do this. And um, when it came to driver's seat, uh, that we were mixing it, and and I discovered, God, I've said this before, it sounds so stupid, I discovered the mute button, because the guitars, they were playing riffs throughout the whole song. And I suddenly realized if I muted the riffs in where Paul Roberts was singing, it changed the whole perspective of the song. And, and it's, it didn't happen by accident. I sort of thought it through. And then because I was a guitar player, I knew how to hit the mute button. It wasn't on the beat. You know, it wasn't like one, two, three, four, mute. It was... Three, four, one, mute. You know, it was th that was one riff, and the other riff happened in another place. And I could do it. I had the dexterity, the musical dexterity, to be able to mute these two guitars and open them at the right spot so they came in at the beginning of their riffs. And it was a magical moment because it suddenly changed this relentless thing into, into a format. Uh, and, and I ended up with, with being told I had a production credit. Uh, and the other thing, which was another complete fluke, was putting a big reverb on the snare at the front, which I, I believe it was long before Start Me Up, which Bob Clearmountain did. Uh, you know, he did the same trick. A trick, it wasn't a trick, it was just something that happened. And it sounded great. So. It, it became this sort of gymnastic mix, you know, the mute button on the on the send and then the mute buttons on the guitar and other people riding stuff. Anyway, and that became a big hit. And uh, I didn't realize I was producing records. I was doing whatever I'd always done because in the bedroom it was, hey, why don't you try doing this and I'll do this and then you know let's put a harmony here and uh, so it was all the same stuff really but didn't have a label then Paul Roberts said would I produce a second Sniff and the Tears album and I suddenly thought oh maybe that's what this is all about maybe that's what I'm what what I'm doing here I'm a record producer well, kind of and from that point on uh, even even though that was a complete disaster, that album, because I didn't know what I was doing. Um, I suppose that's what I became, even though I couldn't get any jobs. So I'd produce my, you know, I'd make my own records and friends' records, and nothing happened until I got a call from, or to work with Trevor Horn. Now you say that you didn't know what you were doing at that point with that second album. Um, the thing is, you also sort of mentioned you didn't know what a producer was. So what did you learn from that process in terms of what a producer is? I mean, I can't define what a producer does. Maybe you can tell me what a producer actually does. Uh, who knows? Yeah, who knows? exactly. I, I suppose the answer is deliver a record. Right. Maybe it's that broad. D deliver something that, that people want to hear maybe but even to this day it's well everything's changed as we know but but maybe uh i don't know some records i've made i've just been a therapist other records i've made i've done everything it, it whatever it takes really and it, it is uh i'm always amazed at people i i, I met dr luke a, a long time ago uh when I was working at Psalm and he was stuck every day, he was in the next room to me. So I'd see him most days. And whenever I saw him, he was studying billboard. And um, I realized to him, he, he made it very scientific, this record production. It, it, was, a, it was as much of a science as an art. I, I've, all I've ever done is, do I like it? Yeah, I like it. 
you know, taste, really. So do you go in with any preconceived ideas? I mean, I come on to Trevor Horn and we get on to that in a second. But in terms of going in, you know, like if you're going to work with an artist, do you go and do all your research? <laughs> well, it depends. I mean? It depends who it is. Right. Every, everyone's different. With, um, uh, for example, Simple Minds, no. But Annie Lennox, yes. I had I had a very, very vague uh, idea that I put to her before we started her first record. And that idea was the guitarist. You're no longer with the guitarist in the band, so let's not have any guitar. You know, that, that yeah. was a pretty vague starting point. But so that was for her to get away from the sound with Dave Stewart, in a sense, to take way, her away. Yeah. Well, it, or or to look at it, to flip it on its head, to for her to to be her, you know, because she's a keyboard player. So so not having guitar meant we were leaning more on keyboards. It didn't work out that way, but it doesn't really matter, you know. It gave us a starting point. Okay, I'll come back to uh, Annie Lennox in a bit, but just to go to Trevor Horn, where was he in his life? when you met him because he, he became... just yeah, i'll tell you exactly where he was i think he'd done yes uh, abc and he just started ztt and I, I i don't know the timeline well enough but but i think the art of noise was something that had been going on while he was making these other records you know duck rock uh ABC, don't think it had the fair light then. They might have, I'm not sure. But certainly 90125, uh, they'd got samples from, you know, Alan White or whatever. They, 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 the art of noise was consisted of the people who, he, he, his team messing about. So that and was then Paul, Paul Morley as well then? Well, Paul Morley came up with the name. And once they had a name, it made sense of their messing about, and then, and then Trevor could get involved in a, in a, uh, I suppose, as an editor more than anything, to to make something out of what they'd done. I've probably got that wrong, and and JJ or Anne or Gary will say, oh no, no, it wasn't that at all, but that that's the impression I got, and I remember I only had uh, worked on one thing. It, uh, it was probably Moments in Love, a remix, and it was just basically editing, loads of editing that we did. What was his style of working and how did that correspond to who you were at that time? Uh, well, he had bigger budgets and, and, uh, and, and much, much, much bigger ideas and uh, understood the importance of rhythm. And those three things... I remember um, being amazed at how much time he kept talking and thinking about the rhythm, which I'd never really done. I thought, oh, drums, yeah, we'd done the drums. But he would spend ages on, on thinking about what rhythm it should be and what the bass should be. And, and, and of course, I learned that from him. Also, uh, because he had... Uh, the ability to command big budgets. I, I, I'm not sure that that's relevant, but at any rate, he had time. He could take his time and would do things which happen with relax, start again. I'd never start again. I, I, you know, once you'd started, that was it. You know, there wasn't the time or the money or the wherewithal to start again, but he, with relax, we started again. So he would literally say, this isn't working. we we'll start from the beginning. Start from the beginning again, yeah. Wow. So tell me about working uh, on, on Relax. He, it was version that, one, two, three that I got involved in. I was asked to go and work for him for two days as an engineer, and I didn't want to do it. I knew Trevor because he played on jingles. And as I told you, my ex-partner was used to make jingles so i'd met him a load of times and um then he'd become this big hit producer and and i was sort of bitter and twisted about it because 
I said, you, you know, why? Why not me? You know, usual nonsense. And so when, when I was asked to work for him for two days, I thought, I hate his records, hate them. I don't want to do this. You know, it's all nonsense. And uh, two days, I'll do two days. And I'm not going to pay any attention to him at all. And it transpired. He loved the fact that I just got on with what, whatever I wanted to do and loved the fact that I could play guitar. So which, he was a person that gave people freedom within the... That's what he does. In fact, another thing I learned, uh, which is weird because I'd worked for years with a guy called Hugh Murphy, who I'd known he'd produced my brother's band. So I knew him as, from childhood, really. And because I had a studio and I knew him, I called him and said, can you bring some work to the studio? And we had a great time and we made half a dozen albums together. And he lent on me all the time, not lent on me, but I could do whatever I wanted, play, suggest stuff to the musicians. And, and I remember thinking then, hey, he's not producing, he's just sitting here. But of course, in retrospect, he was amazing what he was doing. He was recognizing that there were people in the room with good ideas that he was going to use, which is what Trevor did. And hopefully what most producers at any rate old you know, old-fashioned producers do they utilize people's skills well tell me about the guitar then because he utilized that skill of yours didn't yeah he, he he i told him i went everywhere with my guitar it was just a guitar you know with a pedal no amps or anything and uh, so i had it in the control room and and uh, after two days we just kept going and we were doing relax. And then I think we were doing a ferry cross the Mersey and he'd gone for dinner. And I thought the middle eight or bridge or whatever the Americans call it uh, needs a guitar. So I just plugged, he was, wasn't there. And I plugged my guitar and did a guitar part in the middle eight. And he came in and said, what, who, who, who played that guitar? And I said, I did. So I didn't know you play guitar. And I said, yeah, I told you I play guitar. And he went, you know, great. Okay, next day, or maybe, I think it's whenever, he, with that knowledge, he said, look, we're going to start again on relax. And uh, so JJ operated the Fairlight, Andy Richards was playing keyboards, Trevor had a Lindrum, and I was playing guitar, and we just did it. We just, he had a rhythm. Uh, I plugged my guitar in engineering was irrelevant which it kind of always has been for me and um off we went and we came up with that version in a couple of hours probably very quickly that's amazing i mean it's a very the way you describe it is describing it in a very collaborative way which is very. how you know how I'm, I'm a screenwriter today and the film industry is very collaborative and that's something that sounds very collaborative there but that's without the band or without the i don't know who the person the ultimate person with the say is in that situation is it the producer or is it the the band or the singer or whoever you're working with uh, you're talking about relax well, in terms of relax, I think then it's then it's clearly Trevor Horn, isn't it? That's he's probably the yeah. ultimate, the ultimate um, say so. But it can be in other terms. It can be the artist who has a, let's say they have a much higher profile and much higher status, um, and they can demand to have what they want. So, how do you deal in a in a situation where the artist has a different vision uh, to what you want? I'm trying to think of an example. Uh, there are many, but I, I, I need to think of one where I don't, I don't uh, stick my, my head in a noose. Uh, they're, they're just ways of dealing with things. You know, there was one uh, record I made where uh, I pieced the vocal together and the singer didn't like it at all and kept asking me to change it. And I said, oh, okay, well, I'll change it tomorrow. Come tomorrow, I hadn't changed it. Have you changed it? No, I haven't changed it yet. And on and on, a week later, have you changed it? No, oh, 
completely forgot. Oh, oh, don't worry, I'll do it. And and the, uh, you know, asking whether I'd changed it became a weekly thing and then a monthly thing. And then the artist was resigned to the fact I wasn't going to change it. So in a way, I I, I sort of wore them out. You're listening to Pop, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. That's one example. Another example is, I'll change it. You know, whatever you want. I think you're wrong, but I'll do it. Or uh, have an argument. Or a discussion. You know, the, whatever. I can think of uh, loads of times when the artist got their way and were right, and loads of times... The artists got their way and they were wrong. And the same with me. In fact, with um, Annie, with uh, Walking on Broken Glass, she came up with a part that I thought was wrong because there was a clash of notes. And I kept saying, you can't do that. It's clashing. And she said, but I like it. And I said, yeah, but it's, it sounds wrong. And she kept going, but I like it. And then, you know, after toing and froing, <clears throat> I went, okay, you like it, we'll keep it. And of course, it's one of the hooks. Uh, so, that, that another example, I suppose, was um, a record, Don't Stop Moving, by S, S Club Seven. Oh, okay. I do know it. Yes. Yeah. It it was it was record of the year. This this track, this song, and uh, I, I had a thing about the vocoder. I hated the vocoder that goes, "Don't stop moving to the funky funky beat. Don't stop moving to the S club beat." I thought this is so cheesy. It's got to go in the bin. We can't have it. And at the very last moment, uh, while we were mixing, uh, my my engineer Hef. Marais, who we worked together for years. I said, have you still got that vocoder? Yeah. Let's just hear it. And he unmuted it. And I went, God, we better put that in, hadn't we? And of course, that's the hook. And I, I was on totally happy to throw it in the bin. I mean, while you're working with Trevor, the track Slave to the Rhythm came in, I presume, because um, Frankie Goes to Hollywood, or Holly Johnson recorded, uh, uh, the vocal on that first, didn't he? And so what was the reaction to that? I listened to it today. It's on YouTube, actually. Not very good, is it? Well, to be fair on Holly, um, I mean, I've seen an interview with you where you said that his voice didn't work on it. Um, but to be fair on him, the track felt a bit inadequate as well. Do you know oh, what I yeah, mean? Yeah, big time, big time. Yeah. But, but you know, they often tracks would. You need the vocal to get the thing going it's it's chicken and egg really uh but it it wasn't suited to them at all uh, it, actually it wasn't suited to grace jones either until it changed that that was what we ended up calling the german version i don't know why we called it that very very rigid up tempo four on the floor version i mean there's an was, amazing change between that frankie goes to hollywood track and the grace jones yeah version so how did it get from that to uh, grace for, jones quite simple actually uh so that was slave to the rhythm i think trevor probably has we've talked about this on occasion has a different uh he remembers things differently but my take on it is chris blackwell loved the title because ztt and island records were connected i think they distributed ztt and so chris blackwell knew everything that was going on uh, whatever he wanted to know he heard about this he heard the title and said that would work really well for grace jones and then he heard the track and thought it's the wrong rhythm you should you should make it go go for her and uh uh i'll book some musicians uh, that I know in Washington and I'll get them over. We'll book a week at the power station in New York and you guys go over and record the song, make it go, go. 
So Bruce Woolley, who was one of the writers, him and Simon Darlow, he said, okay, yes, I'll do a demo. And he did this demo. Uh, none of us knew what GoGo was. And we get to New York with this demo and the rhythm of it was, it, it went, uh, I remember it pretty well. It went, dung, ka dung, dung, like my Jamaican guy. You know that, it was that sort of rhythm. And he'd sort of made the song work over that rhythm. And um, anyway, so the Go-Go band arrive and was setting them up in the studio in record and push the faders up and hear the rhythm. And the three of us, it was Bruce, Trevor and myself out at the power station, are going, oh my God, how are they going to play this demo? It's completely wrong. Anyway, we're, we finish setting them up and play them a demo and they're looking at us like we're mad can't play it have another attempt the following day no they went home but we had this rhythm because the tape machine had been in record anyway to cut a long story short we looped a section of the drums where the guitar player had gone off to have a pee at drums and percussion and we made this drum loop and and wrote the song over that rhythm oh wow i mean have you got the drum loop there can you because uh, you're in your studio, I just wondered if you can. Uh, well, yeah, it would take me. Okay, let's. Um, oh no, well, let's, okay, let's leave it then. The um, the thing but that it's the this... rhythm. It's the rhythm yeah. of the record. That is a drum loop with a couple of bits here and there. It's, it's a, a two-bar loop. I mean, that became that was part of an album. Of yeah, but the album, the, the album wasn't really an album. It was um us trying to get a better version of that version with a with some incidental bullshit thrown in on the way like uh, me demonstrating a piece of software that's one track uh bruce messing about with the sequencer that's another track uh jill sinclair's brother reading from jean paul Goud's book that's another track. It was just stuff and uh, us messing about really. And then it took so long to decide that the version we already had was the best version that it had to be an album because of the amount of money it had cost. <laughs> By which time she was out of contract anyway. So the whole thing was a bit of a catastrophe. So that actually didn't get released straight away, did it? I don't think that was sort of, it came later because of that. Uh, not, it not was sure. released. I, I think the single was released on uh, Island Manhattan ZTT, three record companies. So no one was prepared to promote it. So it didn't really do much. She had one TV show, I think, or two or whatever. No but promotion. But it's one of those happened. tracks that has become one of the most memorable tracks in in music, isn't it? It's one of those things that so many people cite as a as a one of their favorite tracks. So it's had a life of its own after yeah, that. Yeah, kind of. It's weird, isn't it? Now I saw an interview where you said that because you were at the power station, then Jim Steinman was in the other room, and then you sort of intimated that there were some crazy goings on. So it really intrigued me. Oh, what, what... he he uh, asked us to go in and hear the song he was working on, and we didn't know anything about. I think we we knew who he was because he'd done uh, Total Eclipse of the Heart. I think. Uh, had it? I'm I'm not sure if Bad Out of Hell had happened. I don't know. I don't know the timeline. But anyway, he was doing a Bonnie Tyler song, another one, one of these huge monolithic songs. And, and uh, as we, he said, come in at whatever time it was. He gave us a time to hear what he was doing, which in itself was weird because he didn't know us. And uh, so we went in and as we were at the door to the control room, we were handed lyric sheets and he told us where to stand you know, the other side of the speakers. And um, he he sang the song for us with, with his hand on the volume control. So the track was playing and when in between his vocal, he jacked the volume up, you know, 
So it was monumentally loud and then back down and he'd do the next bit. And at the end, he looked at us and, you know, for affirmation of how great it was. And we were, I remember the three of us were, were sort of just bemused. I mean, generally when you hear stuff the first time, I don't know about you, but I, I, it, I can't really go, oh, that's amazing because I don't know what I'm hearing. I need to hear it a few times. Yeah, no, I've been in the studio where, where artists are, um, are recording and I've had, you know, they've asked me and and I just think, A, who am I? And B, it's too early. I can't. I can't I respond. I can't tell. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. But yeah, I think so it's, anyway. it's funny to have that sort of um, dynamic when someone, it's almost like an ego thing where they, what do they want out of you when you're in there? Yeah. They, they yeah. must want confirmation in some way. Um, but it's, it's a great story. Um, so what do you think, you know, I asked you about Trevor, Trevor Horn and what you learned from him, but I think there is always the other way around. What do you think Trevor Horn gleaned from you over your time working with him? Wow. I haven't... I... Pass. You'd have to ask him. I have no idea. Probably nothing. But I, I don't know. I don't know. We, we, we sort of ended up co-producing and it worked for a while, but then we trod on each other's toes, really. I think it's fair to say we, we ended up, do, you know, covering the same ground. I, I don't know what, what, what he learned. My God, I don't know. He's got a book coming out. Maybe he'll say yeah no I, but i always find it an interesting thing because people always talk about what they learned from other people but they never really think about no, what they true. may have contributed you know what i mean and we all yeah. contribute something so i'm sure there is something there and something positive that he would have taken away from working with you um how does ownership work in these situations in a studio in terms of input of the various people because i think this is always a question and it's always something that comes up you know when you think about bands and the problems they have about ownership and who's done what and who earns what and all this stuff i, I just wondered how it does it work within the do, terms of do, studio. Do, you, do you mean publishing yeah oh well I mean, well, well i learned i learned that it was another thing i learned from trevor and, and not only Trevor, but it was kind of obvious. One has to be very circumspect about this. Or not now. It seems that things have changed. You know, you write, you you come up with a beat, you get some of the publishing. But back then, and to me always, if I fiddle around with the arrangement of something or, or chords or rhythm or what, it, that's not writing. Paul Paul McCartney. Uh, said to me that uh, writing was uh, lyrics and melody. I don't. I think he was. He 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 adheres to that very strictly. I think possibly a bit too strictly in my experience with him. But but I I know where he's coming from, and certainly the artists I've worked with, I I wouldn't claim publishing unless I've written the music with them you know, from the off. So Simple I... Minds, I, I think Simple Minds gave me publishing on two songs on real life. I, I would, have, I don't know how they came up with that. I would have said all of them, but, but I would never argue with them about that. You know, it was uh, Ronan Keating, I wrote loads with, Will Young, I wrote loads with. Uh, the girls from Propaganda, I've just done an album with, wrote the whole thing with them. Let, you know, loads of things I've written. But then with, with Annie, uh, whatever input I, I might have had, it, didn't, it wasn't writing, for example. Okay, well, let's talk about Annie. What, what input then uh, do you feel you had with Annie there, she's coming out of a massively successful band with Dave Stewart and going solo. And you've, you know, done your research on her and gone in and said, uh, okay, you know, we should do this without the guitar and she's a keyboardist so we can 
concentrate on that. What what at first what was it like to work with uh, Annie Lennox? And I can imagine that she's a very headstrong person. I've interviewed her in the past, but she is a she you know she's got a a, a toughness about her that is really quite. Um, well, I find it quite cool, actually, that, you know, she she knows what she wants. So how is it to work with someone who really sort of seems to know what they want? Well, I, I made three, in effect, four albums with her. Three albums, a load of live stuff and stuff for movies and a, a lot. And and uh, uh, they've all been different. And I I think... Uh, I think to begin with, she was very unsure of herself uh, and needed uh, not cajoling, but confidence boosting, which I messed up when I first met her, but got got past that. Uh, uh, and then as things went on uh, and she became more... Uh, secure as a solo artist, I, th I think our level, uh, we, we'd argue a lot. We argued a lot. Certainly on uh, uh, Medusa, we argued. Oh, God, I'm t saying this like, you know, it's a badge of honor. I don't, I, I'm not saying it. What I mean is her understanding of what she wanted to do increased. Uh, and then Bear, we we sort of it it was it we'd had enough because we we would disagree on rubbish things, but but in a way we become over familiar, and and I was happy to disagree with her in a in a a, a way you do with someone you're familiar with as opposed to being circumspect maybe, so I. Uh, probably I, I'm somewhat to blame in, in that department, but then she became more opinionated and and I didn't think she was right, whereas before she wouldn't have expressed those opinions. Do, do you see what I'm saying? So the whole sort of balance shifted, as as happens with, with these kind of relationships. I mean, in any creative work, there's going to be these these differences come up and they either get resolved in a way that both can agree or they get resolved in a way that neither agrees and then someone has to finally pull rank, I suppose. And yeah, that's, go that's going to happen everywhere, isn't it? Well, yeah, but there there is that thing about contracts. A good contract is one where neither party's happy, <laughs> you know. Uh, someone once said that to me. In other words, compromise. But but um, did we compromise? I'm just thinking. Well, well, actually, on Medusa, our compromise worked out pretty well, because she, there were two reggae songs. She, it was a covers album, mm. and she wanted to cover two reggae songs, and and uh, I kept saying to her, "You're not a reggae artist. You know, reggae artists do reggae really well," and and she began, "Yeah, but I love reggae." great listen to it then but don't sing it you know we can't do reggae and she was adamant she wanted to do reggae and um so we would we argued about this a lot and then finally she she said we i, I remember where we were we, anyway uh she goes, okay, you've sort of battered me into submission. We won't do them. And then because she did that, I said, oh, God, look, we'll, why don't we do one of them? You know, we'll just do one, and I'll try and figure a way of doing it. And she went, okay, then. And then we came up with a, I came up with this way of doing a, a Bob Marley song called Waiting in Vain yeah. that wasn't reggae. And and so it was a sort of compromise in a way, but but in another way it worked out quite well that we didn't end up with reggae, but we did a reggae song in an interesting way. So the argument had there was fruit from the argument, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, absolutely, and I think that's there's there's always there can always be a positive side to to, to an argument if it's done in a yeah. you know constructive way. Um, 
in terms of an artist, when an artist comes in and someone like Annie Lennox has this amazing voice, you know, I mean, it's just stunning, her voice. Um, and is someone like that protective of, of their voice? If you see what I mean, they know how their voice works. They know what they want, how they want to sound and how they want to express and sing something. How difficult is it to challenge that idea? I think with her, it was always the same process. We do a vocal. Look, my thing about doing vocals is not making a big deal of them. Just do them. Just sing a song. You know, it's not right. Now we're going to do the vocals, you know. None of that. Just sing it. So, so she'd go out to the vocal booth or wherever, and she'd start, and then she'd say, stop, stop, let me drop in there. Let me go in on, on the fourth line. So she would conduct herself and uh, Hef, and, uh, Hef would keep everything. So we'd have an empty multi-track and everything she sang, we kept. And so she, she'd be doing this and then she'd go, all right, now let me go through it again. She'd go through it again. And I might then say to her, Annie, just do it again, but why don't you sing it quieter? Okay, because she was happy now. She had what she wanted, and I was saying, just give, give, give me some other stuff. And then I'd, I'd give her broad input, which, which I would like to think is the case with all singers. I hate the idea of, look, line three, that third word, can you just, you know, it starts getting a little bit painful. I'd rather fix it later than put the singer through the ringer, as it were. I mean, you me mentioned about sort of saying, you know, maybe sing that a bit softer or in a different type, um, you know, different tonal level. Um, there's that song, The Downtown Lights by the Blue Nile. Yeah. Um, can you tell me about that? Because that was that case, wasn't it? That, that it well, that, actually that, uh, but also um, Waiting in Vain. Because Waiting in Vain, uh, I don't want to wait in vain for your love. I don't want to wait in vain for your I don't want to wait. Uh, I think she says it three times. And I said to her that we'd got the vocal and I, I said, this, this section, it's sounding a bit boring. I think what you should do is, is pretend you're, you're, you're in a pressure cooker and it's coming to the boil. So the first line is not, you're sort of in there and you're singing it. And the second line, the pressure's slightly greater. You're not necessarily much louder, but there's a sort of thing where your blood pressure's gone up you know and the third one it's like full-on blood pressure but you're not yelling you're just you, you know the veins are coming out on your forehead try that so she did that and it worked really well so that that's an example of of input you know it wasn't so it was kind of vague and and, and a bit strange input really like sing like you're in a pressure cooker uh but downtown lights was another thing because it was very hard to put that song together in the first place it took took over a week to to get a thing from beginning to end i had a rhythm and i couldn't figure the chords and funny enough i know paul buchanan quite well and talking to him felt like nobody had actually played the song it's as if they had a sound they played one note and then played another note and then a, and it was all disparate notes that made this patchwork quilt of harmonic content rather than someone playing the chords which he sort of acknowledged anyway that's how it felt to me and i had to put it together for her, for her to have something to sing to and it's quite complicated, the song, the timing of the vocal. Trevor was doing a version with Rod Stewart at the time, at the same time. <laughs> and he said Rod couldn't get the timing at all. He just sang it and I adjusted the track to Rod. But Annie, the way we did it was line by line. So she said, uh, oh, oh, I played a track. Yeah, I can sing to that. Okay, let me learn the first couple of lines. And she went into the booth and we started it and she sang the first two lines and have stopped the tape machine and the three of us 
spontaneously burst into floods of tears. It was the weirdest, weirdest moment because it sounded so great and had taken so long to get to this point. And she sang it. It was just amazing. And, and of course, it, it points out something very interesting, which is that those artists who have what we call soul, they don't really have soul at all. They just do it. And, and what they're doing intrinsically has soul. It's not, you know, if I, if I think of, um, I worked with Jeff Beck, made an album with him. He might as well be reading a newspaper while he's doing this stuff. And it's unbelievable what he's doing. And if you don't look, it's like he's bleeding the guitar. But in fact, he's just doing what he does. At Bonnie Raitt, that she sings a song called I Can't Make You Love Me. And I might be wrong here, but it sounds to me like she's reading the lyrics. But it comes across like the most moving vocal you've, you've ever heard. And it's only moving because she does what she does. And, and, it, and that's what happened with Downtown Lights. Annie sang the first two lines. She wasn't going... So, you know, there was not any heartfelt goings on. It was, all right, I think I've got the melody. All right, you, yeah, let's go. And she did it, and it, it just sounded extraordinary. And I think that, that accounts for most great artists. They just do it. There's no yearning going on. They're just doing what they do. And that's yeah. what happened with that. But there is some sort of innate connection between the listener and and the artist through their voice through the music yeah and completely. through all those things isn't there and it's a beautiful thing but it's not i don't think it's a conscious thing you you know that that i've been in the room where people have uh, said to the singer look do it with more you know passion in that and it always sounds terrible you know just do it i always think just do it that's how you're going to get a good vocal or a good solo or good ending. Just do it. And if, if just doing it isn't good enough, you're not good enough because you're not, you're not an actor here. It's not acting. It's just doing. So you talked about McCartney earlier, or you mentioned McCartney earlier. What sort of remit do you get when you work with someone who's got that legacy you know, I mean, there probably is no greater legacy in the world from a living artist than McCartney. So how how do you, in a sense, contribute to someone with that sort of massive legacy? How does that operate? Well, I think it's the same with any anyone who's, uh, what's the word, successful, uh, big time, I don't know, whatever you, you, you call it. You, you can't think about that. And for sure, McCartney wanted Trevor or Trevor's team or us or whatever it was because he wanted what we did. So there wasn't much of a question of that. That's what he wanted. So we didn't go there going, what do you want? We went there going, well, this is what we do because that's what he wanted us to do, what we do. Of course, it got reined in because he has an, a, an opinion and a, an approach so the whole thing, it kind of worked. Worked on one song really well. What song was that? It was called Rough Ride. Okay. Why did it work well? Tell me. It was the first thing we did. And um, uh, it, it, I don't know why. Why did it work well? Trevor, I set up in, in the control room. I had all this gear. I just bought a whole bunch of... Uh, computers and synthesizers and and I as I was setting up Trevor said I'll, I'll pop upstairs with Maca and see what he's got and and he came down and said I've got found a song that will work with a I had a drum box and I programmed this rhythm in it and uh, he said it'll work with that rhythm you programmed I went oh okay and I found the rhythm played it and Maca goes oh yeah yeah we'll work with that. So I had the drum box, he picked up a guitar, and involuntarily, I 
started playing the bass on a keyboard. Not that I'm a great keyboard player, but I had this amazing bass sound. I'd sort of created, <clears throat> set it up. Trevor had a keyboard. So Mac is playing guitar, Trevor's playing keyboard, I'm playing bass and rhythm. And we, we just kept going through the song and it sounded good. It sounded really good, empty, but quirky and enjoyable. And I think all that, that came out, there were loads of details that happened. It, it's not, it's boring, but um, I, I thought it worked well, that one. Have you heard it? Yes, I have actually. Yeah, I mean that was um, it was in flowers in the dirt, wasn't flowers it? Flowers so, in the dirt. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, the you've sort of transitioned into film, um, you know, in the last years. What is the difference in terms of producing music for a film than actually, you know, than producing records? What is what do you have to think about that is different? uh in a way it's in a way it's the complete opposite in a way because with records there's a structure and there are sounds that people tend to use and it's very important that it pops out it's got to be you're competing with other music that's compressed and hard and bright and Whereas with film, you're serving the, the vocal is the dialogue and the structure is determined by the picture. And uh, what was the other thing? Uh, it, it's sort of, and, and so the sound can't be too, can't get in the way of anything. It, you know, it, you've got sound effects and dialogue to deal with. So, I, I completely messed up the first thing I was asked to do, which was The Dark Knight Rises. I, I, for some reason, Hans Zimmer asked me to mix his score for The Dark Knight Rises. And, and mixing, I, I never considered myself to be a mixer as such. Uh, I mixed all my own records, but that was just because that was the end of making a record. It wasn't because I was the mixer. And he asked me to do it. And I, I said to him, I'm confident in my ignorance. So I took up the challenge and messed it up completely because I mixed it like a record. I made it, I made the top line of the music too loud and it was all too hard and bright. And Chris Nolan rejected the whole, everything I did for what they call the first reel. It was about 20 minutes of music I'd mixed and he rejected the whole lot. <clears throat> it was explained to me what I'd done wrong. And from that point on, I started learning. Uh, you know, I lost that, that uh, night, that, that sort of stupid know-it-all approach to things that, that maybe we all have at some point. I thought I knew what I was doing. And that taught me that I didn't have a clue what I was doing. And I had to learn very quickly how, how to transition from records to film. So Hans Zimmer, had you met him through Trevor because of the yeah, bubbles? I, and, you know, I, I, well, I met him uh, in 1984 at Psalm East. He appeared and we had a laugh. It, it, I was kind of jokingly rude to him. and. Uh, I have this thing, I don't know if it's true, uh, you'll have an opinion, I'm sure, on this. I always think the first five seconds, which is a bit of a generalization, but the first five seconds when you meet someone, you're setting out your stall of how your relationship is going to be. That moment when you meet them is the moment that determines, to a large extent, how your relationship with someone will be. If you're, you know, you're forever going to be a bit like that. If you're on a level with them straight off, you'll probably be on a level with them forevermore. I don't know if it's true. It's just a thing that has, has stayed with me. And with Hans, when I met him, I made a jokingly disparaging remark about something. The first time I met him, he was, 
He was just a jobbing session musician at the time. And because of that, our relationship has always been, uh, e even though he's Hans Zimmer and, and I have inordinate respect for him, um, but, but I don't feel the need to kowtow or not tell him how I feel. Whereas most people in his orbit are, are um, very circumspect with their opinions. I don't feel the need to be. I can tell him stuff. Happy for him to ignore it. It's not a problem. But I'm in a, I feel I can say what I want to say to him. And he says he appreciates that. I'm sure he does, because I think it's refreshing. I think a lot of people who are ultimately very, very, very successful end up having yes people around them, and it's a dangerous yep. thing. Very. You know, and very. that's that's always a, a, a really hard thing. Um, well, I just want to end with saying something that I, I feel, and that's there are so many records that you've been involved on, um, from the Pet Shop Boys to, to Annie Lennox, um, uh, to Frankie Goes to Hollywood, stuff that has meant so much in my life. I just want to thank you for your contribution to popular music that has really been something in my life and something very important. So, oh, that's Steven nice. Lipson, thank you very much. It's my pleasure. I hope I keep producing stuff you like. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hey guys, welcome to Giggly Squad, a place where we make fun of everything, but most importantly, ourselves. I'm Paige DeSorbo. I'm Hannah Burner. Welcome to the squad. Giggly Squad started on Summer House when we were giggling during an inappropriate time. But of course, we can't be managed. So we decided to start this podcast to continue giggling. We will make fun of pop culture news. We're watching fashion trends, pep talks where we give advice, mental health moments, and games and guests. Listen to Giggly Squad on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.